You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is uh, December 1st, 2022 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And I was... uh, Thinking that we would that it might be useful to talk about uh, mentalizing from an applied um, point of view. Um, I was talking to somebody this this morning about it, uh, trying to understand how um, <clears throat> active mentalizing and uh, uh, non mentalizing interface with the different attachment strategies, and uh, and how in the pattern of mentalizing in organized insecure and disorganized people even though you could call it active mentalizing is still in some sense limited by the attachment conditioning and then how that uh, manifests uh, in the way that we form ultimate reality into conceptual reality or the experience that we have of the world in uh, talking about this we use the anthony bateman uh peter fonicky uh, approach that they developed uh, at what is now the anna freud center uh, to to treat uh, personality disorders um, we don't really use the personality disorder frame in in the work that we do uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, I did pick up a book um, from Masterson's group, which is um, um, explaining their approach to personality disorders using the attachment lens. But I, I haven't digested the material enough to be able to, to relate it to you. Masterson uh, is a psychologist who came up with the the frame of narcissism. At the one end of the narcissistic spectrum is antisocial personality disorder, and at the other end of the narcissism spectrum is borderline personality disorder. Um, lately, <clears throat> borderline personality disorder has been uh, getting a lot of bad press, and so they're They're advocating uh, a different uh, couple of names for it, so you may notice that happening in the future. Uh, um, And when you map that loosely onto the attachment, the antisocial personality disorder is the extreme of dismissing, and the borderline personality disorder is the extreme of preoccupation but it doesn't map exactly and actually most people that have um, what we would call a personality disorder uh, has components from the whole range of uh, narcissism so it's not just one thing we might from the buddhist lens call that fixed views which is a less Uh, I'm sorry that in our culture, mental illness is often such a pejorative. It's very painful, I think, to think of it in that way. Uh, Most of the people who come through their early childhood experiences uh, have responded in a fairly predictable and ordinary way to the conditions that they faced as children you know, extremely difficult conditions uh, are necessary for somebody to develop the very rigid views, the very fixed views that they have, Uh, particularly in the U.S., where there's really very little treatment even available for people. I don't know if you saw in uh, New York, uh, they've decided that it's acceptable to um, hospitalize people without uh, their permission. Uh, 
Um, they just need to be deemed uh, unfit to take care of themselves and now they can be hospitalized. This is uh, a throwback to um, prior to the Kennedy administration in the early 60s. Uh, you may <clears throat> remember that before the Kennedy administration, we had these big state-run hospitals for mentally ill people, which were quite horrific. And the response to the to the seeing the conditions there resulted in this dual-phased legislation that passed during the Kennedy administration. One was to close the state hospitals, and the second was to fund small community-based centers uh, so that rather than being removed from their communities, there would be treatment available within the community that people who had mental illness could go to. You may also remember that when Reagan came into office, that he uh, continued to fund the closing of all of the hospitals and canceled the funding for the community mental health centers, which is the thing that precipitated the homeless problem that we have now. Um, so the gradual dismantling of the public uh, mental health system, which was then supposed to be replaced by a community-based system, resulted in the, the, the statewide and countywide facilities being closed and nothing replacing them. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox about that. <clears throat> when you look at uh, rigid or fixed views, what that really means is that when you take conceptual reality, it's, it's filtered through these rigid views and it creates a, a very distorted perception of what's actually happening. So you have uh, in the Buddhist concept, ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is the sensing data. So you have the capacity to sense something, the object that can be sensed when there's contact, consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's then evaluated for what I would say urgency, Vedna is the Pali word. It's often uh, translated as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. But uh, one of the things about this process is that urgent material always goes to the front of the line and requires much less input to form a neutral material almost never makes it into consciousness because the bandwidth of consciousness is so narrow. And then pleasant if there's time. The brain science on this is pretty good. Um, something that's pleasant requires double the intensity of the sensation that something that's urgent requires. And um, it requires a duration of about a half a second in order for it to get into the queue for consciousness. The cue for consciousness, of course, um, negative experience or urgent experience can jump the cue. So you may never get to the pleasant stuff because the cue is always being jumped. If you <clears throat> then that uh, that information when it comes to the top of the cue is compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a meaning that's in the perceptual database uh, that's close enough to the pattern of sensing experience, it is uh, attached and it rolls into conceptual reality and the views of slip in between, you could call them mind states, and distort the perception. And so when you have these rigid or fixed views that come out of adverse conditioning experiences, it's easy to create these uh, experiences of conceptual reality, which don't actually match what's happening in the present moment that well. That all making sense in that description. The other piece to understand is that we do not take a complete survey of everything that's in front of us and then create a version of reality based on that. We cherry pick things based on our preferences for, for what's in front of us. So each of us, because our conditioning is different, is cherry picking a different set of data points 
with which to create the experiences that we're having. If you're very present and very open, there's not a lot of rigidity in, in, in the way that you form experiences, you end up creating a perception of the present moment, which is close uh, in the way that we can understand the present moment to what's actually happening. And if you uh, have a lot of rigid views, you create quite a, a different experience of the present moment uh, that other people would have a hard time uh, really understanding uh, because uh, they don't have the same conditioning as you and they don't distort in the same way that you do. <clears throat> that all makes sense. <coughs> So when you talk about the frame of the Fanagi Bateman mentalizing, we're really talking about the mentalizing capacities that are developed in the very early experience uh, with the caregiver, the primary caregiver. We don't uh, see ourselves accurately by ourselves. We are, see ourselves in the reflection of other people. And uh, when we're born, uh, we really rely very heavily on the reflection of our caregivers to, to understand our nature. And we begin to develop a working model of who we are, what our capacities are, what our desirability is based on the experience of our caregiver reflecting back to us, their experience of being with us in those early days and months and years of our life. <clears throat> we begin to develop the capacity to mentalize or, uh, or to understand what's happening in that dyadic relationship. And so the, the deficits and the advantages of our caregiver uh, are part of what's reflected back into us. And we begin to develop ourselves in relationship to them. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the attachment conditioning is so stable generation to generation because we come in largely as a blank slate and then absorb uh, through the interaction with our caregivers how they do it, it might be a way to put it. So if you have a skillful caregiver, you learn a lot of good skills. And if you have an unskillful caregiver, you learn a lot of unskillful uh, strategies for being in the world. So an example of that might be, let's say you're a colicky baby, you can't sleep and you're irritated all the time and you cry a lot and you have a caregiver who's quite resilient and actually delights in taking care of you even though you're extremely fussy. And so your experience of yourself being really fussy is that it, it creates the experience of delight and an, an, a heightened interest in you and your well-being. And so you develop a working model of yourself that even when I'm having difficulty, even when I'm fussy, even when I'm hard to, to uh, settle and can't sleep, uh, the people that are around me not only will be delighted by me in that safe, but they'll also want to take care of me in that in, uh, state. <clears throat> so then you don't have a problem with being in that state because that your expectation then is that you'll be well taken care of then. But let's say you're a colicky baby and you wear your caregiver out and they're angry at you and they're irritated at you and they they don't want to, to do it anymore. Then what you learn is that in those states they have to be hidden because if they're not hidden, you're going to be abandoned. And if you're going to be abandoned, you're not going to be able to survive. And so you, you learn to suppress those expressions. In one case, the authentic expression of what your experience is, is not being inhibited, it's being rewarded. And in the other case, you learn that authentic expression is not tolerable here, it's dangerous to do that. So I have to learn to suppress it. And this is all unco unconscious and or let's just say pre-verbal. We, we haven't developed the capacity for autobiographical reference yet because our brain hasn't developed enough this is all procedural that's at the level we're talking about the the fearfulness to be authentic 
uh, in, in people who had those early experiences of rejection is unconscious and very primal because it, it's in the survival uh, frame, the, the intensity of it. <clears throat> so depending on the pattern of uh, mentalizing skills that are offered you, you take them up. We talk about it in four domains of active mentalizing and three domains of, of um, non-mentalizing. Non-mentalizing is psychic equivalence mode, uh, teleological mode, and pretend mode. Psychic equivalence mode means that you think that your understanding of what's happening is actually what's happening, and that everybody is having the same experience of it as you are. And that gives you a lot of latitude to assign meaning to other people's reactions, other people's internal experience. In teleological mode, you assign meaning to the external appearance of things without investigating whether your assignment of meaning is accurate or not. <clears throat> so when you present yourself teleologically, you expect people to understand you in the way that you intend the meaning to be. So you buy a Rolex watch and you expect people to think that whatever it is that you think about somebody who wears a Rolex watch, that I'm successful, I've made it, that I should be treated with a certain amount of respect because I'm wearing this watch. Somebody else might not necessarily have that view of that watch and might think something entirely differently about it, but in a teleological mode, you think because you're wearing that watch that people will treat you in the way that you expect them to, and if they don't, it's usually angering. When you look at somebody else in a teleological mode, you assign meaning to the way that they present themselves. You don't really investigate whether your assignment of meaning to them is accurate or not. Is that making sense? Christian. So I, I can think of examples of like where the teleological mode would seem to overlap with a realistic expectation if someone's really like a, a CEO and, you know, surrounded by yes men or something like that, <laughs> wearing Rolex watches. And, you know, if you, you could have your entire life, you know, given the society that you keep where that's just getting confirmed. Right. So <clears throat> is, is that, I guess my question is, is, is that something that would be more associated with an avoidant, um, avoidant attachment style? Um, well, this is an interesting aspect and in really what I'm, I'm um, talking about tonight. The aspect of the, the teleological non-mentalizing mode, depending on what your native attachment strategy is or current attachment strategy is, uh, has different aspects to it. <clears throat> so for instance, um, in a dismissing person, when you look at the dimensions of active mental mentalizing, uh, <clears throat> spontaneity versus monitoring, self versus other, internal versus external, and cognitive versus effective. Dismissing people tend to be very self-oriented. They tend to be very internally oriented, and they tend to be over-monitoring. They tend to be cognitive. So in the teleological mode of a dismissing person, they read the external experience of something and they understand it to be uh, what they understand it to be. And because of the way that they're active, active mentalizing is, they don't pick up contrary information readily. And so that would be active mentalizing in a non-active mode and just teleological mode, which is non-active, it might appear similarly to that. The difference would be that they don't really pick up on uh, any contradiction to it. In an active mentalizing mode, um, a dismissing person might pick up that somebody doesn't agree with their interpretation. Uh, is that helping at all? 
in non-mentalizing mode, there really is no alternative to uh, the understanding of it. Uh, as in a contrast, in teleological mode, when it's a preoccupied person primarily, what they're trying to do is present themselves in a way that will provide meaning to the other person. So that uh, what they try to do is intuit what it is that you want them to be, and then they try to become that. So that their teleological presentation is often pretending to be uh, who it is they think you want. Not because they want you to want them in that sense, but because they want you to take care of them in the way that they want to be. So they're often taking care of you, not so that you'll be taken care of, but so that they'll that you'll then take care of them. Too complicated? <clears throat> I guess I'm not exactly seeing the preoccupied teleological mode. Like I would have thought that maybe an example, I, I think of borderline being more on the preoccupied end. Yeah. I don't know that's true, but um, I would think of like, you know if someone is you know has has a really they've been hurt by their partner or something then internally they're, they're saying i'm hurt so this person intended is trying to hurt me this person's against me like kind of splitting or whatever um would that be an example of the teleological mode for preoccupied because it i guess i wasn't quite getting how your example was uh someone seeing the world in a particular way and kind of fixating so the dismissing person tends to review the world and assign meaning to it um they don't use an empathetic experience of the other person as a way of checking it so if you look at a dynamic uh mentalizing uh presentation of a secure person for instance they uh understand what they think is going on but they have the capacity of empathy to check it and if they if it's confusing to them they also have the capacity to ask what's actually happening so the stance would be this is what i think is going on what do you think is going on this is my experience of this is what what was your intention or what was your meaning to the experience of this rather than assuming that their interpretation of it is actually accurate there's a flexibility a, di uh, a dynamic uh, secure people aren't worried about the relationship collapsing because they tend to rely on relationships and they tend to be stable so it doesn't come into their mind so much the dismissing person is extremely sensitive to uh, abandonment uh, fear which they mostly experience as rejecting and so a teleological response to something for a dismissing person is to interpret what's happening as a rejecting gesture, which they then don't check because they, they don't have the capacity really to uh, check in that same way. <clears throat> so if you remember empathy, the first level of empathy is that uh, visceral response to the witnessing of somebody else's physical or emotional pain. The second level is where you can read the external presentation of facial expressions and body language and assign meaning to it. And the third is the compassion and empathy where you actually feel the experience of the person in your body emotionally. We tend to compare the second and third to see whether we think somebody's lying in insecure and disorganized attachment. Dismissing people because they suppress awareness of their emotions don't have the capacity of empathy, so they, they don't actually gather that information. It doesn't occur to them to check uh, the presentation of the person with the empathetic experience of the person or what the person does. They really just look at the external presentation. Or uh, if they're really not even able to do that, they rely on what somebody tells them is happening. Um, a preoccupied person uh, in pretend mode what that means is that they need to present themselves in the way that they think you want them to be so that you'll take care of them 
So in a, the teleological approach to a preoccupied person is to pretend to be something, uh, to present something, to get the other person to respond in the way that they want to without ever asking directly for what it is that they want. <clears throat> then, of course, uh, it's often a pseudo-empathetic experience that a preoccupied person has. They may uh, experience uh, emotion, uh, and they may be able to touch into the empathetic experience of someone else, but because they can't separate it from their own emotions and see the two as distinct, um, don't really have a sense of the, uh, the effect that the empathetic experience of the other person is having on them. Not helping? Now, I think this is why it's useful to talk about mentalizing to, because of the way that it might manifest. So a dismissing person is very self-oriented, very internally oriented, very cognitively oriented, and over-monitors. What over-monitoring really means is that the dismissing person previews everything that they're going to express uh, in through the self-experience, which is delayed about a half a second. So they're not spontaneous. Everything is previewed. Everything is calculated for effect. So you notice that they're not spontaneous. It's not quick, their responses. There's always a sense of calculation in that. A preoccupied person is the opposite of that. They're very spontaneous. They're very other-oriented. They're very externally oriented, and they're very emotionally oriented. And so they're constantly just banging off uh, reactive uh, expressions without much monitoring on them. Um, they lose track of themselves. They don't really differentiate themselves from the experience of the other person. They're very externally focused. They're reading the signs, the teleological experience of a um, preoccupied person is reading the, the, the signs of the other person and then pretending to be uh, responding in a way that they think will get uh, them taken care of. The reason it's pretending is because if you made a gesture to take care of somebody and the intention was to actually take care of them, that would be one thing. But if you make the gesture to take care of somebody because you have an implicit understanding with them that, that if you do that for them, they'll do something for you, it's quite different, right? It doesn't matter to you whether you succeed in taking care of them because the intention of that was for them to take care of you. <clears throat> Joan? Um, how does dissociation uh, interplay with the non-mentalizing modes? Are we just dissociating from evidence that would contradict what what we normally see? Um, <clears throat> dissociation is a in adults is primarily an emotional regulation strategy. So we really uh, talk about mentalization and emotional regulation. Uh, as working together to create uh, a, a, a resilient capacity for emotional regulation. In people who dissociate as adults, uh, what ends up happening is dissociation becomes the main strategy for emotionally regulating. So if something is difficult and it exceeds the window of tolerance, the Dan Siegel term for the intensity of emotion that you can just process, then you dissociate the experience that exceeds the window of tolerance. Dissociation is a kind of a spectrum. At one end, your thinking becomes very rigid, very black and white, friend, foe, good, bad. And on the other end, it's a trance-like state. In the extreme end, of course, it's a loss of conscious awareness. Um, if you don't mentalize very well, then it's hard for you to mentalize that you're dissociating right. so that you don't include that in the way 
that you assemble experience. A dissociative person <clears throat> comes and goes from the experience of the present moment. And what you'll notice if you, if you know dissociative people is that each time they come back, if you're accepting of the fact that they spaced out and fill in the blank for them, they can keep up with the conversation and be in line with what your experience is. But if you don't, if you express irritation or difficulty with the fact that they can't stay in the conversation, then they'll stop telling you that they're not in the conversation continuously. And that, and the, that is really where the, the problem is. They will create a bridge that links where they remember they were and where they are now uh, so that it makes a sense to them internally what the experience was. But there's a very low degree of accuracy in, in the bridges that they make. So if the conversation ended and there's two minutes of conversation that followed, and then you come back in and you have to fill in two minutes of conversation or 10 seconds of conversation, whatever it is, uh, and you make up the bridge, it may not at all re resemble what happened. And then what begins to happen is the dissociative person is having one experience of the conversation and the other person is having a different experience of the conversation. Um, and, you know, you could even make agreements in the, in the gap and not remember that you'd made agreements or talked about something, made a dinner uh, uh, appointment, you know, not remember it because you were dissociated. And then when you don't show up or you don't keep the agreement and you earnestly say, I don't remember making that agreement. I don't remember making that plan. Um, <clears throat> the other person is thinking you're lying, right? Because they didn't dissociate the conversation. We're manipulating or doing something. Uh, dissociation, nobody thinks, oh, they didn't show up because they dissociated the agreements. <laughs> So the, the way to come out of dissociation is to work with the emotional regulation strategies that are not dissociative so that you can strengthen them and use them instead. And also to develop the capacity to mentalize the coming and going, and then actually to uh, insist that people fill you in, in the gaps so that you don't get, uh, you don't get too far away from what, the conversation was. Um, is that making sense? Um, you still there, Joan? You, you, your image seems to have frozen. All right. Well, maybe she's frozen. Well. Um, So these active mentalizing modes, I use spontaneity and monitoring. Um, Bateman and uh, Fonagy use automatic versus um, controlled. Self versus other. Internal versus external. Cognitive versus effective. Uh, what you'll notice in different detachment uh, outcomes is these different patterns of uh, functioning. And so when you begin uh, to use your meditation practice to build up the mentalizing skills, it's useful to understand what your native attachment strategy is so that you can recognize the skill set that you already have and the deficits that you need to develop so that you can spend your time developing the deficits um, what often happens in meditation practice, like many things, is that the, to develop the skill set uh, of the deficits is awkward and clumsy and unpleasant, and we don't really like it that much. But to reinforce the skill set that you already have feels pretty good. And so you could organize your practice in such a way that you're reinforcing the skill set that you already have, but and not addressing the skill set that you don't have. So you don't really improve in terms of your capacity to mentalize. 
So that's one of the reasons why understanding what your uh, attachment strategy is. If you are rigidly um, controlled or uh, monitoring, <clears throat> then you have to lighten up and allow spontaneity. So you have to loosen up the mind. If you're uh, completely spontaneous, completely automatic, you never really check what, what you're doing, then you need to begin to develop the monitoring and you need to begin to develop interventions so that you, that, that stays in balance. If you're really self-oriented, uh, like the dismissing person is, and understand the dismissing person is self-oriented because nobody came to help them and they don't feel empathy. So they don't pick up information from other people. It's not, they didn't learn to do it and they don't have the skill to do it. So there's no information for them to gather. So it's natural that they would be so self-oriented because that's where the, the information for them to manage being in the world is. You have to develop the capacity to recognize emotions in the body. So you have to develop the capacity of uh, conscious experience of emotions, embodied experience of emotion. And then you have to learn how to regulate them in a conscious experience. And then also to read the uh, empathetic experience of somebody else, which comes back online as soon as you're able to consciously experience emotion. Um, so the question in the chat is, is the disorganized person already a master by practicing both approaches? <laughs> Were it so? <laughs> the, uh, the, what makes the disorganized person um, experience so chaotic is that the different patterns of, of um, uh, preoccupied or, or dismissing or even secure can flash at different moments. Uh, and so one moment you could be completely preoccupied, one moment you could be completely dismissive, one moment you could respond in a secure way. Uh, so that you can't predict really what your response is going to be. And also other people can't predict what your response is going to be. And that puts you in the unreliable category. The unreliable category also puts you uh, at an arm's length from most organized people because they don't like to, to deal with that so much. Certainly secure people won't. Cindy? Yeah, I, I have a question I think relates to all this. Um, as you've been talking about the the spectrum between dismissive and antisocial and borderline preoccupied, I, I realized that um, I have a brother who's three years older than me, and he seems to me extremely dismissive. Mm -hmm. And all the things that you list are like, this is his MO. And I, as I'm on the other spectrum, I'm preoccupied borderline uh -huh. and I, through my entire life and you know, he's what, 71 <laughs> through my entire life. I'm like, how do I ever bridge a, a way to communicate with this person? It's always like earth to rich, even as a child, <laughs> earth to earth to Richard, are you there? And he's just somewhere else. And it's very painful for me in that position to have somebody who's so out of tune with my, you know, emotional body, my, you know, everything that I express, he's just, where is he? But it can be very painful. And I'm wondering, would I just, in that situation, somebody who's preoccupied, trying to just even have a brother-sister relationship, how would you do I just work on myself and then all of a sudden I it's easier to tolerate his dismissiveness? Or do, do I try to work with him and say, you know, Richard, I've been telling you for 20 years, I don't drink alcohol. So why is it every time I come there, you hand me alcohol? And he's just like, won't get it and just tune into, I don't drink alcohol. He can do what he wants. That's just a basic example, yeah. Well, one of the things uh, 
particularly with relationships uh, with uh, siblings and family members is the um, it's a long relationship and it's quite complex and the the the, the working models uh, began with a, a whole different uh, set of experiences same parents capacities right but you were a child you were younger than he yeah three years younger so he had a whole different range of experience if you're so different in terms of your attachment then the conditions that he grew up in were quite different than the conditions you grew up in well, i don't know why but we had the same parents same parenting yeah well one of the things that can happen is that the, de the demands that you uh, come into the world with in terms of how you need to be taken care of in the body that you are sometimes fit into the capacities of the parent, sometimes exceed the capacity of the parent. So the child whose needs fell within the range of what the parents could do uh, has a very different experience of their needs being met most of the time, whereas mm -hmm. a child whose needs exceeds what the parents could do had the experience of their needs not being met very much of the time, which creates that makes a, sense. Yeah. a very different attachment outcome, same household. Um, you as a, as a younger sibling had uh, needs from an older sibling for care and for, for mirroring and all sorts of other different things uh, that may not have been satisfied at the very beginning. And so it sets up an expectation with them that the relationship is going to be dissatisfying. Uh, and it's very hard to let go of that uh, early desire for a particular type of experience um, with another family member. Um, so part of it is to see them the way that they are. The way that you described him doesn't sound like he's able to respond to you in the, in the way that you need him to. No. So part of that is to accept that not that you should abandon getting those needs met uh you know john bowlby famously said you're only as needy as your unmet needs <laughs> so if people think that you're needy it's because you have a lot of unmet needs and the idea is not to uh, to squash the neediness the idea is to get somebody else to meet their needs because the person that you're asking to meet them doesn't have the capacity to meet them and it is to really see them clearly and to see what possibilities exist in the relationship with them and then take those possibilities mm -hmm. and enjoy them and take the needs that they are incapable of meeting and get somebody else to meet them so that you're not needy in the sense that you have a lot of unmet needs. That would be ideal. Yeah. So the situation is often that we we, this is the, the rigidity of this. We want the person that we wanted to meet our needs to meet them, even if we, we can see fairly clearly that they can't do it. Yeah, I see that. There's no way you can do it. And I'm still wanting it after all these years. So you have um, to give up on them. That's what I like to say. I've yeah. tried. Just, I, I, emotionally, I, I feel so connected and I want to love him and I do love him, but I feel no connection with him. So it's like, how do you love your brother when your needs aren't being met, even at a basic level? Well, you take the need, those needs and give them to other people to meet. And so then just you... don't love him or don't. No, I don't mean that. I mean, love him the way that he is. <laughs> with what he has to offer so that when you go and you walk in the door and he offers you a drink you put your arm around him and say oh buddy i've been telling you for 20 years i don't drink Give it to someone else. <laughs> he doesn't get it it's only his world whatever works in his world he thinks is what he has to offer me and... right because he doesn't have any way out of that <clears throat> it's not he's not uh, what we, where we really get into trouble is when we think that they uh, have the capacity to do what we want and they're withholding it from us for some reason. 
Right, but he doesn't have the capacity. So I'm looking for teaching moments. Like yeah. He doesn't have it. He can't give it to you. He's not withholding it from you. He doesn't have it to give. So I shouldn't even try and teach him and write him an email and say, in the future, when I come to visit, could you remember that I don't drink? Or No, yeah. That wouldn't work. Um, well, that would be the the setup for disappointment when he doesn't remember when you come. So it's just in the moment. That's as far as it'll go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> One of the things about the remarkable thing about seeing people the way that they are <laughs> it's tough. that it you don't take it personally. Yeah, and I take a lot personally. I'm so empathetic with all those things about preoccupied. I've got I'm totally that. I guess I'm borderline, maybe. <laughs> um as constructs go. Um, but you know, there's also a way out of it mentalizing is one of the pieces learning to emotionally regulate developing the skill set that you need uh so spontaneous very spontaneous but not too much not enough monitoring so you you're tightening up the mind so you're continuously monitoring each time you notice that you get preoccupied and locked into the experience of the other person you bring your attention back to your own emotions and experience them as the primary place uh the you you can't that the same with the internal external you constantly bring yourself back into your own experience and anchor in your own experience you don't anchor in the experience of the other person and you begin to to uh, monitor your thinking we do that so, we do that through the investigating self-generated emotion stopping afflictive self-generated emotion and aquatomizing right. the pool of poison and pain so would that be when there's self-generated emotions that are overwhelming uncomfortable unwanted extremely fearful then i would go to mentalizing and recognize that that's what's happening yeah. and then suppress those thoughts and replace them with something beneficial because the the emotions are coming from the mental mentalizing right the emotions are coming from the self-generated emotion. And so you want to monitor whether it's a useful strategy or not. It's not useful. You want to suppress it and replace it. You can't just stop. That's one of the things. I'm just going to stop using these bad habits. You can't do that. They're regulating habits. You have to offer a different strategy for regulation or the body-mind will regulate itself using the tools that are installed. That's one of the reasons why all this stuff is so resilient. You're getting something out of it that's vital it, it mm -hmm. may be unskillful but you're still getting something vital out of it so you have to suppress the afflictive strategy and replace it with a beneficial strategy you have to develop the capacity for beneficial strategies uh, so that they're effective because if they're not the mind will toss them and go back to the old habit because you cannot uh, not regulate you only have some agency in how you do it Okay, that makes sense. And that's why we do IPF. Right. IPF is really about uh, embedding the database with different choices. It turns out that the body-mind does not care whether you can imagine it or whether it's actually based on experience Right. in order to form a response. Mm -hmm. Now, you may think that these visualized ideal situations that we work at developing are a rickety uh, structure to hang a life on and you would be right uh, about that but uh, that's uh, not really understanding what happens over time you develop these uh, imagined uh, responses that were not what actually happened but when the body mind uses those as the basis of responding to the situation in the present moment and it unfolds in a more secure way than what you're remembering is something actual that happened. And as time goes on and you do that more and more often, the database of actually uh, experienced secure responses to situations gets richer and richer to the point that you're no longer relying on the visualized scaffolding. You're relying on this very robust 
database of experience that actually did happen. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. So you move from the visualized uh, uh, experience to something that's really uh, robust and dynamic that, that was possible because of that initial framework. Like a seed pearl in an oyster. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. Why don't we do so, a, a little bit of uh, practice, some meta for self. Um, and then we should continue talking about mentalizing, I think, so that it, it really becomes clearer. About what? Mentalizing? Or? Mentalizing and its relationship to emotional regulation. We'll continue to talk about this so it really makes sense. But go ahead and take your meditation posture. How'd that go? Good enough? As usual, my mind got distracted a lot and I just came back to the, um, <laughs> feels like a mantra to me, yeah, be peaceful. Good. And um, I don't know if I'm looking for feeling tones, you know, noting, is that part of what we're doing when we're just repeating this, may I be peaceful? No, not really in the body at all, really up oh. sort of in, in visual experience, looking for the view. So we're actually looking for a view of peaceful mind? <laughs> of loving kindness. Okay. Yeah, I felt kind of neutral. The um, Sanda, you know, <clears throat> we all use these hyphenates to try and describe what metamind is because we don't have a word for it mm -hmm. that we that means any uh, means the thing. Um, kindness uh, and then loving is usually meaning the inclining toward. Um, but then a lot of people have a lot of heat associated with love, a lot of craving associated with it. And so that would not be it. It's it's without, it's cool. That's what he, uh, always cool, always kind, um, but inclining towards something. It's not balanced. It's not equanimous. Um, and then noticing how the world appears to you, how you appear in the world when you hold that view as opposed to a different view. So um, I didn't really... The view that I understood views uh, through was the view of anger. So I was angry a lot of the time and I could see how distorting it was and I could recognize the pattern of distortion. And once I figured out, oh, the mind is distorted because this view is there, I could then look for other views. Um, and that's what uh, actually began to happen and then recognizing that particular view and causing it to arise and being able to sustain it. That's the idea. So that you have, you begin to develop the agency to control the view that your mind is holding, which is extremely useful. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, good. Christian? I was... Uh... I guess bringing my body into the practice in the sense that like I have a, a lot of back pain and I would, I had the meta mind and then I would kind of bring up the, the, I would allow the pain into awareness. So I think having the meta mind seemed to allow more sensation into awareness and it kind of had a more non, it had a more allowing or non-judgmental quality to it where I could. Good. Um, so it seemed effective in that way. Yeah, I would agree it is. Jake? <clears throat> so in this model that you're presenting, would you say that the, the method of agency that you're putting forth is, the, like you said, the capacity to control and regulate your view, and that's the main kind of subject you're using for self-agency? Yeah. yeah. Okay, just checking. 
You lost your view. <laughs> ah, yeah, there it is. I was looking at I was, I was, I was looking at Christian. And I, was, <laughs> I wasn't sure of myself. I was looking for some reassurance and I wasn't getting it from Christian's face. <laughs> this is a really great class today, George. Thanks so much. Oh, good. Thank you. I thought it was a, I think this is like the best class I've heard today. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it up. <laughs> All right. So we have some stuff coming up. Uh, it's getting toward the end of the year. Um, I'm going to take the week off between Christmas and New Year's, so there there won't be this class then. Um, and really, we're not going to start anything else for the rest of the year. So, um, but next year, um, let's see here. On the seventh of January, we're starting. No, is that right? Yeah, that's right. A, a level one, uh, and we've changed the format of level one to four uh, half days rather than three day longs. So four Saturdays. 9 a.m. until 1.15, uh, we're going to uh, uh, present the level one in, in, in a slightly more compact format. <clears throat> and then um, starting on February 4th, we're going to do a level one class is that right for EU? Well, this I don't know, they're not labeled quite right. We're going to do a level one US, then a level one for Europe, and then another uh, level one. We're going to start a level two. Sorry, I'm a little discombobulated. February uh, 9th. On February 9th. Um, <clears throat> then um, we're going to, I'm, we're thinking about doing a retreat as you might have heard earlier uh, in the spring. In June, I'm doing a retreat in Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands. Uh, and then um, that's the basically the first half of the year. So that's the stuff that's coming up. Take a look at it. It's on the website. Um, I offer the teaching freely, but it, it is offered on a Donna basis. Don is the Pali word for generosity. So we do hope that you'll make a donation if you can. Uh, any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. We really appreciate it. Thank you for coming. I hope to see you soon uh, somewhere on the path. Bye. Um, I have a question. The, yeah. the February 9th one, is that just evenings? That um, the level two. I think it's 4.30 to 6.30. Oh, 4.30 to 6.30 for ongoing for six months or something. Every other week for six months, yeah. Every other week for six months, okay. And um, I went on your website to look for a F, uh, um, IPF practitioner. You said to look there because uh -huh. Martin's not available all the uh -huh. time. So I tried to contact, I think, the third one down. He lives in Santa Cruz. He's from Europe. Stas. Yeah. And he didn't email me back. And so I wondered, is he still active or? He is. Um, I might email him again. Let him know that I was looking because. Okay. Uh, I, I I thought it gave me his email and I just emailed him, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And since he's in Santa Cruz, I'm right nearby. So that would be a nice connection. Yeah, that would be easy. Okay. All right. I'll Good. I'll also email him again. All right. Yeah. Okay. And Hesh uh, Sakalek uh, burned up in a wildfire. 
It's not there anymore. That's sad. I have good memories of Bakali. Yeah. yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye.